You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. It doesn't seem quite right to devote just 15 minutes to a book that took four years to research, but I'm confident that after listening to my conversation with Andrew Roberts, the author of Churchill, Walking with Destiny, you'll agree this book, published at the end of last year, deserves the praise it has been receiving. In its review, The Economist describes the book as terrific and adds that it is the fullest ever picture of Churchill. This is Andrew's 13th book following other bestsellers including The Storm of War, Masters and Commanders, and Napoleon Alive. Welcome. It's great to have you here in Dallas and you certainly have had a busy day. Yes, yes. I think I've given five speeches so far and I've got two more. Just two more to go tonight. Well, after hearing your talk this morning, I looked up the number of biographies written on others and saw that more biographies have been written about Napoleon than anyone else, followed then by Jesus Christ and Hitler. This is the 1011th biography on Churchill, you said. So the obvious question is, what motivated you some five years ago or so to undertake such a project? What's different about your book? I think the first thing is the extraordinary number of new sources that have been made available over the last 10 years. One wouldn't expect that necessarily from somebody who's had over a thousand biographies written of them. But nonetheless, I was very fortunate that Her Majesty the Queen allowed me to be the first Churchill biographer to use her father's diaries. And King George VI met Churchill every Tuesday of the Second World War. They uh, served themselves from the sideboard in the uh, Buckingham Palace at lunchtime because the King was trusted by Churchill with all of the great secrets of the Second World War, secrets like the nuclear secret and the Enigma decrypt secret. And luckily, the King wrote down everything that Churchill said. So we have this wonderful new source uh, about what Churchill was thinking every Tuesday of the Second World War. But that's really just the beginning. Um, There have also been 41 sets of papers that have been deposited at Churchill College Archives in Cambridge, um, including some very important ones, uh, such as Churchill's daughter's wartime diary. We've had the Soviet ambassador's diaries. Uh, We've got, um, I myself discovered some six years ago, the War Cabinet's verbatim accounts and various other um, papers that the family have allowed me to use that uh, other historians haven't. So it really is a uh, cornucopia of new sources, which has been the reason that I think that this book now has something on pretty much every page that has never appeared in a Churchill biography before. Now, the central theme of your book, I understand, is really understanding Churchill's philosophy, the way he approached life, and the subtitle is Walking with Destiny. It's such a rich characterization. What struck me about your drawing of his personality was that it wasn't based, it seemed to me, on raw ambition, like so many politicians we see today and throughout history. It was derived from something else. I think that there's nothing wrong with raw ambition with people like Winston Churchill or indeed Napoleon if the um, ambition is allied to extreme talent, which of course it was in both of those people's cases. However, you're right. Um, I didn't choose the subtitle by accident. It was Churchill himself in his war memoirs who said of the day that he became Prime Minister on the 10th of May 1940, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. 
And what I've tried to do very much in this book is to unpack that, to investigate the extent to which all the various jobs he'd held in the past, being in charge of the Royal Navy in the First World War and the Second World War, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Home Secretary, Minister of Munitions, in which he was in charge of two and a half million people in the First World War, really was a, a preparation for his hour and his trial in May 1940. I have to admit, I love watching The Crown. Tell us about the relationship that developed then between Churchill and the young queen. He worshipped her. Um, he had known her since she was two and a half years old. And in fact, he wrote to Clementine that he thought that she would make a very good queen one day. And this was when he'd met her when she was two and a half. By the time uh, she was in her early 20s and had actually become queen, sorry, her mid-20s, he thought that she was completely delightful. Um, part of him was in love with her. And they had great meetings. This um, is much juicier than what I thought. <laughs> um, they had wonderful meetings where the private secretaries would uh, sit outside the private meetings between the Queen and Winston Churchill. They would hear peals of laughter from inside. Of course, both of them were very interested in horse racing. And on occasion, Churchill's horse uh, raced against the Queen's. And when Churchill won, he used to apologize to her in the most charming way imaginable. A few years ago, I had the chance in Turkey to visit the Dardanelles, and I was just struck by the topography and could imagine the horror where over 150,000 people perished. And as, as you go into great detail, and I think you said this was one of the most trying chapters to write, it was one of Churchill's great failures. How was he able to rebound from this? It was, as you say, a catastrophe, both for um, British arms, of course, or Allied arms, I should say, because an awful lot of French died as well at the Dardanelles, and of course Australians and New Zealanders as well. It was about to destroy Churchill's career, really. He decided to go and fight in the trenches, which he didn't need to do. He was 40 years old, and it was a very brave thing, really, to have decided to do. He was a married man. He wasn't being called up, but uh, he decided almost as an act of redemption to go and fight in the trenches. But then after a while there, he recognised that the grand strategy of the British, this constant attack, regardless of the consequences and the huge losses, was not the right way to go about the First World War. And so he wanted to attack the government over this. Eventually, the Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, was so fearful of the eloquence of these attacks that he was brought back into the government as Minister of Munitions in July 1917. How did he recover? Because you think about nowadays, if something like that happens, one is forced to resign. Well, he was forced to resign, but then he recovered by showing tremendous bravery. He went into no man's land in the trenches no fewer than 30 okay. times. He was understood to have done a good thing to have done this, and very much his recovery came both as a result of his extreme bravery in the trenches, but also as a result of him being a very good advocate in the House of Commons. How many speeches did he give? Several hundred. One thing I can tell you, though, is that the number of pages of his speeches cover 8,000. And he wrote, when he was quite young, The Scaffolding of Rhetoric. And this is before he even gave a public speech. Before he ever gave a public speech. At the age of 23, he wrote this tremendous essay about, which was unpublished. And it was very fortunate uh, for him that it was unpublished because it did advocate deliberately exaggerating in public speeches in order to gain attention. This was something that would have been hung around his neck a lot in his career because he did deliberately exaggerate things. We see that today in some speeches. It's not unknown. You're quite right.
We have many students who listen to this podcast. Winston Churchill was quite the professor about good writing. What were some of the secrets that he had in advising people how to write better? Yes, well, he certainly did. His first piece of advice was, if you want to write well, you've got to read a lot. He himself read Gibbon and Macaulay and the great writers and historians of English history. He was somebody who was able to quote great reams of Shakespeare. He loved Dickens. He was a, a proper reader. And that was his first trick. The second was with regard, and of course one should listen to him because he did win the Nobel Prize for Literature. His next trick of the trade was that what he called that noble thing, the English sentence. You have to master the English sentence and each sentence should express one thought and one thought only. Don't get bogged down with subclauses. If you've got a choice of a long word and a short word, always go for the short word. Don't try and show off how clever you are by using a synonym which is just lengthy for its own sake. If possible, also use Anglo-Saxon words, use words that have been in common parlance with the English-speaking peoples for a thousand years and can be found in the Old English. Those were some of the many pieces of advice that he, uh, that he gave. Where can one find scaffolding of rhetoric? Well, the best summation is in my book, Churchill Walking with Destiny. Like Churchill, you're a historian, and I'd like to ask you about how Churchill is now being viewed in history. One of our members sent me an article that just appeared in The Spectator entitled The War on Churchill that is being led by John McDonnell, who's number two in the Labour Party. Where is this coming from? Mr. McDonnell, of course, is a doctrinaire Marxist, and he all his life has admired Karl Marx, and Churchill was the first and most foremost anti-communist. He attacked the Bolshevik Revolution as soon as it took place. So it's frankly coming from a naked ideological position. One of the things that we're wrestling with in the United States is what to do with some of the monuments with the Civil War. As a historian, how do you view this issue? I think that the monuments should be properly labelled. They should give anybody who goes past them a chance to recognise that they were of their time, that not everybody agrees with uh, the person who's being glorified, and therefore they should be able to be put in the correct historical context. I don't necessarily agree that they should be um, dragged down. I think that to ignore one's history in that way or to hide it or to hide from it, I think ultimately is a bad thing. Winston Churchill himself admired, for example, Robert E. Lee as a general and as a gentleman, and I think he would be saddened to see what's been going on recently. I know that you like to end your remarks, often with a joke, so will you please end this podcast with one of Churchill's? <laughs> um, all right. Well, as it's an intellectual audience that um, I'm speaking to on this uh, podcast, I think that they might enjoy this one. When his private secretary came to him to say that his cook had been made pregnant as the result of a nocturnal assignation with a man in the street in Verona. Winston Churchill replied immediately, obviously not one of the two gentlemen. <laughs> Andrew Roberts, thank you so much for being with us. Your book, Churchill Walking with Destiny, was one of the Wall Street Journal's 10 best books of 2018, one of the Economist's best books of 2018, and one of the New York Times' notable books of 2018. So it's certainly one that our listeners should read. Thanks so much for thank being our guest on Global indeed. IQ Minute. Great honor to be on. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, 
visit worldaffairscouncils.org.